You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 39 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Monday, the 2nd of January, 2017. So from all of us to start us off... Happy New Year. Happy New Happy Year, everyone. Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you guys have all had a very pleasant time over the holiday season. Uh, with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. Asher King. Hey, guys. Will Forster. Hello, everybody. And my name is, of course, Harry Knight. Of course. Of course. <laughs> what else could it be? <laughs> <laughs> what have you guys been up to over the Christmas? You've been building boards, Will. Boards, yes. Uh, in some respect, I I built I made two blanks. One of them didn't go very well because the the feller uh, ferreterius sold me the wrong glue and it melted the EPS <laughs> foam. But one of them is nearly done. It's I've made a little mini Simmons just to keep things simple. Glassed on fins like a five o, yeah. uh, three inches. It's it's pretty fun. Two days away, it'll be done. We'll be surfing it. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. You've made everything as well. Everything. You've made the fins. You've yeah. done the, yeah. That's very, yeah. very cool. I weaved the fiberglass cloth. Weaved the fiberglass yeah. cloth back <laughs> in the middle of the night. <laughs> Have you guys ever heard of, uh, of an economist who wrote a like an essay called I Pencil? I no, feel like you no. might have heard of that, Asher. No, I haven't. Your business background. So basically, this guy wrote this uh, this essay, and it was arguing that no one in the world knew how to make a pencil from scratch oh yeah. yeah i know that okay so it, and he describes you know if you know how to mine the graphite you wouldn't necessarily know how to produce it and you know yeah. anyway it was really cool i thought it'd be a really cool exercise to do the same thing for a surfboard and to write an i surfboard essay <laughs> and the only thing stopping me is i don't know which kind of board now to use because i would have just done it with like the sort of board you're making well you know foam and a uh, wooden stringer and all mm-hmm. that but then i was thinking well I could get in touch with Firewire, but that would be an even more complicated process. That would be a bit more complicated because then you have the machinery involved, you know, some technician in, in Thailand and yeah, it's it pretty complicated. Yeah, it'd be a fun experience though, wouldn't it? Yeah. Really yeah, cool. but it, you, could, you could do a totally unnecessary Brian Cox flying around the world just to briefly speak to a man in Indonesia. <laughs> and a tree down kind of thing. Maybe start with a hand plane. Yes. Yeah, yeah that's a good idea. Let's go and speak to Rod next door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the subject of new equipment, thank you to Firewire. That we've, I think every single one of us has got a new Firewire now. We've just picked up the order that we put in a while ago and got a big collection of longboards and some mid-lengths for the resort. You were trying one of those mid-lengths the other day, Ash. Oh, I loved it. The Seax. It's one of Wingnut's models. It's, it's so much fun. It's a you know board in the seven foot range, but it has really soft rails, so it still trims pretty well for its size. You can surf it from the front half of the surfboard, but when you get it on the tail, it it, it responds really well. I had a ball. Yeah, highly recommend them. I when just the day that you got back from from being away, and uh, and all the Firewire boards had just arrived. And we got a bunch of nose riders in, in the whole... We got a whole bunch of different boards, but I think we got like seven or eight nose riders of different types and lengths. And then I, I paddled out with Maureen and she was on her new specialty and I was on the 9.6. We went into Robbie's and we bought, which is a, a local surf shop that's just opened up and we got these nice big fins in them. And then I saw Will coming down the line. I think I saw you and Will splitting a peak just north up the beach. And then I saw Harry paddling out. And then we all kind of came over and just as the sun was going down, we're all sitting together, all of us on longboards. And, you know, everyone was riding shortboards when you joined Surf Simile, Asher. And I was thinking like, 
Asher, you've got everyone on long <laughs> Your work here is done. You yeah. can move on like, to the next like ride on to the Mary next Poppins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just with a bag that he opens up, a small bag that he just pulls a big knife. <laughs> <and it's laughs> yeah, I can honestly say, I think we were having more fun than anybody in the lineup. It was just conditions that worked for it when it's small and clean. Uh, yeah, I was able to snake Harry's girlfriend so badly on multiple occasions. It was yeah, she, was, she was stoked. <laughs> <laughs> Ash, you went home? Did. I was back in the States for almost two weeks. How was that? Oh, it was fun. I um, did a lot of mountain biking, which is uh, like an old passion of mine. Like I kind of got to reignite. I went up to North Carolina and hit Solly Trails up there and did a couple of days at uh, DuPont Trails, which any of the listeners that want to get into a little East Coast mountain biking, very good up there. I was very intimidated, though. <laughs> what, what, what was scary about it? It's mountains. Water doesn't really scare me, but when you hit a rock, it's... I used to follow a friend of mine down mountains occasionally, and he was like, he was really good, you know, he'd be hitting Mm -hmm. the berms, getting the bike over at 90 degrees and stuff, and I'd sort of be skidding down the hill with my back brake just locked up. (laughs) (laughs) And it just, yeah. When you fall, bits of the bike stick in you. Yeah, and your feet are attached to the bike, it's it's high consequence. Yeah, well, when I was in when I was in school, I, I went to Florida State, which is in Tallahassee, and that is pretty landlocked. It's about two hours from a coast that doesn't get waves. It's pretty flat, isn't it? Is there mountains around there? Uh, there's a pretty good bit of elevation in Tallahassee. It's at the base of the Appalachian Mountains, and there's just a couple hundred feet of elevation, but that's kind of all you want for, for the mountain biking at the level I'm at. I don't really want to climb mountains, but... Yeah, so that was my uh, my non-surfing hobby. So speaking of being intimidated by things and pushing yourself beyond uh, your comfort zone, I just I don't know if, if you guys have ever listened to the Free Economics podcast, but the most recent one that's come out is a rebroadcast of a conversation with Anders Ericsson, you know, the guy who did the 10,000 hours thing, mm-hmm. which we covered yeah. in episode 14. And they were talking about how important it is that for practice to be productive, you have to be really uncomfortably pushing yourself beyond your comfort zone. So anyway, just if you're any listeners out there who are looking for a good podcast, that was a really cool episode. So before we go into the news, just two quick corrections from previous episodes. We've got one very quick pull up. We were talking about the Triple Crown in episode 38, and I mispronounced the surname of the Portuguese surfer Frederico Moraes and called him Frederico Morales. So uh, apologies, Frederico, and all the uh, Portuguese speakers out there. There was also a quick correction, Asher. You uh, you mentioned when we were talking about the Longboard World title that uh, camels are not native to China. I was actually really impressed with this correction. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, we had an email from Andrew pointing out that there is one species of camel. The uh, Bactran camel is native to China. I will put a link to the Wikipedia page for anyone that would like to see one of these camels. I think you know. they're quite a bit inland though, so it had yeah. to be a, an import to Hanan. Yeah, it was a very lost camel. So anyway. We used to have camels on the beach in Skegness. is that that real (laughs) yeah we don't now I don't think they're they're native to Skegness I never said they were native (laughs) listeners correct (laughs) me they're Yorkshire camels obviously (laughs) (laughs) that camel (laughs) (laughs) he's got a right ump on him oh nice (laughs) wow that's that's a very niche gag any Yorkshire (laughs) listeners will appreciate that um Okay, rolling into the news then, a few bits of contest news to come to, but before that, uh, we had some really, really big waves in the Atlantic in the run-up to Christmas. There was some big wave surfing going on all over Europe, particularly the UK. 
Uh, we even got some big waves. So I'll put a little link to that video. And one of the North Atlantic wave buoys has set a new record for an open ocean swell at 62.3 feet. That's open ocean swell. That's not the breaking wave. So that's Where was that? pretty enormous. It was out uh, sort of in between Ireland and Iceland. Wow. Uh, just way out in the open ocean. So that was pretty cool. That then prompted the big wave world tour event at Nazare to go ahead, which took place in some pretty ridiculous conditions. This is the first time they've run a paddling contest there, and several of the competitors at the end of the day sort of said that it was right on the edge of being safe and being sensible to run. I'd say Nazare is not an entry-level big wave. That's not <laughs> where you want to go get your first big waves. No, pretty shifty, pretty difficult to be in the right place at the right time and then uh, yeah paddling in uh, huge huge waves uh, Damien Hobgood ended up getting hit by a jet ski I think they lost three jet skis over the course of the day uh, just from rogue sets so Jamie Mitchell congratulations on on winning that event uh, whether it goes ahead in next year <laughs> we will see I haven't seen all the footage that's come out of that event mm. but Nazare is one of those really deceptive looking waves because you always see the photographs from sort of behind where people stand on yes. the point. Uh, and then you have the foreshortening effect of the zoom lens. Yeah. But it looks like it's almost going to break on the headland. I haven't seen sort of drone footage from the going around and from the side that help give you a sort of sense of how the whole setup fits together. Yeah, I'll post. There was some really good video uh, shot of this event and I'll, I'll post it on the uh, show notes. The other bit of contest news is obviously the Pipe Masters event took place, which finished off the men's WCT. Michelle Barez won the event, beating Kanoa Iragashi in the final. It wasn't great pipeline. Uh, there weren't a huge number of big waves. The best waves that were ridden were all at backdoor. A huge number of sort of big names being put out by rookies and wildcards and things like that. But kind of fun to watch. It was. Uh, I thought Slater surfed really well. I wish Slater would have made the finals, but just got kind of nipped in the semis. I was really impressed with Kanoa. It's a pretty young guy that stepped up to the plate. He got his buddy Zeke Lau on tour. Well, yeah, so uh, Kanoa double, ends up double qualifying through the QS and through the CT, which then, yeah, bumped Zeke Lau on. Unfortunately, and I, I think this might be the first time it's ever happened, but Keanu Singh, having won a CT event in France has not qualified for the 2017 tour. Yeah, that is a shame. Is, he was oh, one of that's my favourites. Him and Nat Young both not qualifying. Yeah, well, so Nat Young's not qualified, but Nat Young's not had a particularly great season. But I think, I feel like there's something a little bit broken in the system that if you can, like, even if you have a terrible season all the way rest through, if you win an event, like, that should somehow, points-wise, that should allow you to qualify. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, but... There's sort of the two routes. People take the free surfing career or the competitive career. And Keanu's got a pretty tough hand right now because Fox just discontinued their surf team. That's his main sponsor. So he, he doesn't have the financial backing to chase the WQS. There's not that much prize money in it. He doesn't have that financial incentive to pursue the QS, and he doesn't have a free surfing career to fall back on. So I'm pulling for him. I, I, he's one of my favorite surfers on tour. The life, uh, life as a pro surfer is a definitely a tough route. That is a tough route. Um, on the subject of qualification, uh, we also have another correction from a previous episode because uh, somewhere along the lines we got our calculations wrong. Laura Enova is on tour next year, uh, but Bianca Buttendag is first replacement. I, I was going to say if, but let's just be optimistic and say when the women's tour involves a lot more just big, heavy, barreling waves. Laura Enova is going to really come into her own, I think. When there's like Chopu, Cloud Break, more kind of waves like that on the women's tour. 
So the end of the men's WCT for the year also brings the end to our Fantasy Surfer League. Dub's Green Room Bandits managed to win the pipe event, but overall Glenny's Groms won the season, just beating Paul's over the full claim by nine points in the end. Yeah, I wondered too, Pete. I couldn't there do we it. Uh, we also <laughs> had a follow-up from last episode. Photography Sucks, a.k.a. Matthew Shenning, uh, actually got in touch with us and he said, uh, I wanted to explain my handle. Uh, no funny story, unfortunately. I am also a photographer and as most photographers I'm sure can relate photography is a cruel mistress on one hand it is so easy to take a picture but on the other hand it is incredibly difficult to make a great photograph it's also a tip of the hat to an art criticism book that I've always loved title of called most art sucks hence the handle photography sucks Uh, you can check some of my work at www.shenning.com or follow me on instagram at photography sucks so there you go you check check out, out. yeah I checked out his Instagram and he does not suck <laughs> photography <laughs> the main features for this episode is going to be a little bit different to normal we've pulled together some interviews that we've done over the last actually quite a long time the first interview is one that myself and Rue did almost a year ago they're not all about surfing but I hope that you guys will find them interesting So the first interview we've got this episode is with Professor Daniel Sigmund from Princeton University. Yeah, this interview that Harry and I did with uh, Daniel Sigmund was was nearly a year ago, actually. Yeah, it was. But I thought now is a really good time to put it out just because, as anyone who's been following the news recently will know, Scott Pruitt has just been announced as the guy to run the Environmental Protection Agency under the new administration. Scott Pruitt is the Oklahoma Attorney General and he's got a lot of ties to the fossil fuel industry and he is someone who takes the teach the controversy stance to climate change and I just think it's worth spending a minute explaining what this is for any listeners who don't know about I don't know three or four decades ago when the whole smoking thing came about the the tobacco companies couldn't just out and out say that smoking doesn't cause cancer. So what they would do is say, ah, yes, well, some scientists say it does, some scientists say it doesn't. There's a controversy giving the impression that it's sort of undecided kind of 50-50 thing, whereas actually what was happening was 99% of scientists concluded that smoking did cause cancer, and, you know, 1% for various reasons didn't. And we had a a pretty well-established scientific consensus, and they were creating this sense of a sort of a, a false controversy where none existed. The same thing was then adopted by the young earth creationists when they were trying to combat evolution being taught in schools. Again, they would say sort of teach the controversy as if there was some sort of scientific controversy about evolution. And that same technique has now been picked up by climate change deniers. So uh, Scott Pruitt has come forward and he has said uh, this year, uh, and I'm quoting here, Scientists continue to disagree about the degree and extent of global warming and its connection to the actions of mankind. The debate should be encouraged in classrooms, public forums and the halls of Congress. It should not be silenced with the threat of prosecution. Dissent is not a crime. So you can see again, he's kind of taking that same tactic of trying to present this false controversy. And it's, you know, it's really worrying. Uh, The new administration has already said that they're wanting to do a U-turn on the Paris Climate Accord and, um, and as, uh, you know, representatives from the new administration have said that they think global warming is a hoax. Uh, so, you know, it's worrying and it's great to have someone like Daniel, who's a climate scientist, come and, and talk, about, uh, talk about it from his point of view. 
if anyone would like to just add a little context, we talk with Daniel about uh, his area of expertise, which is carbon dioxide and the carbon dioxide cycle in the earth and how quickly it can be absorbed and all that sort of thing. If anyone would just like a little context on man-made carbon dioxide and its effect on global warming, those are really, really good. It's only a 10-minute podcast, but just very, very quickly, concisely and clearly goes through how we know with no doubt at all that the world is warming up because of CO2 and the CO2 is being produced primarily by burning fossil fuels. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. We're very lucky this week to have Professor Daniel Sigmund from Princeton University's Geosciences Department. He's been staying with us as a guest at the Surf Simply Resort, and he has very kindly agreed to come up to the high-tech podcasting studio. Otherwise known as my living room. Otherwise known as Rue's living room. For a little interview, Daniel, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, it's great to be here. Yeah, so I've been here through the week. I'm optimistically a level three surfer, and it's been an amazing week because I came here really not knowing uh, how to progress with my surfing, that I could progress with my surfing. And Jesse, who's been my instructor for the week, has really given me a roadmap for you know, where in my fledgling surfing career I could go. So it's been a great week. So listeners, you can't see this, but Dan's actually sitting here with zinc all over his face. Uh, we, were, we were out surfing at sunrise this morning. We had nice little offshore waves and uh, we're about to head out for a sunset session after we've finished recording. I'm ready to go, so I'll be, I'll be brief. But, uh, but Harry and I wanted to bring him up here because of what Dan does. And, and just tell us a bit more about what you do when you're not surfing. Sure. So you could call me a lot of things, but um, I am <laughs> a biogeochemist. Uh, I'll try to unpack that for you. That, this is basically a field that explores the interconnection between life, earth processes, all the physical processes you could think of as going on in the environment. So what are the connections among those things? And mm-hmm. in particular, I'm interested in the link between life and climate. And um, you, of course, climate affects life, but it turns out that life also has tremendous effects on climate. And one example of this is through the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide. So when uh, the terrestrial biosphere, by which I mean all the plant life uh, on land stores carbon, it turns out that uh, plant life on land also accelerates weathering rates. It helps to strip carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it as limestones. And and then I should get to my favorite part, uh, the life in the ocean actually stores more carbon dioxide away from the atmosphere than does the terrestrial biosphere that you see around you. And this is a remarkable thing, because if you were to dredge all the organic matter out of the ocean, Mm -hmm. it's a tiny fraction of the amount of carbon, organic carbon, you have stored on land as as plants. Uh, So there are no forests in the ocean, that is to say. And yet, the ocean stores much more carbon dioxide away from the atmosphere than does the terrestrial biosphere. And it does it, actually, by a process that we lovingly know as the biological pump, the ocean's biological pump. So what happens is phytoplankton grow in surface waters, Um, That organic matter that they produce eventually sinks into the deep ocean. Mm -hmm. Bacteria break that organic matter back down to carbon dioxide, but now it's in the deep ocean, which because this is uh, the deep ocean is filled with very high density water, cold high density water, can't just come back up to the surface and release that CO2 easily back out to the atmosphere again. So the, the ocean, this biological pump of the ocean is sequestering carbon dioxide in the deep ocean. Um, And so this is, this process is particularly important, we believe, over um, ice age cycles. And ice age cycles is something that I study intensely. 
so what's the mechanism that we see happening now? I, I mean, we were talking just before and I was saying how a, a couple of years ago I saw uh, Michael Mann talking about his original hockey stick graph and he was sort of the first guy who, I guess it was the late 70s, early 80s, who sort of saw man-made climate change happening and this elevation of CO2 in the atmosphere. And, and am I right in saying that since then the evidence has just sort of compounded what he originally thought and actually the situation's worse than we originally thought and so i guess i don't know i guess my question is like in two parts mm. the first part is what's the mechanism that's happening in the ocean now that that's sort of the the man-made uh, or not man-made effect that's raising co2 levels and then the second part is i guess the million dollar question like how much trouble are we really in like out of 10 are we like a big 10 out of 10 trouble right so the work I was telling you about, one of its main motivations is to understand what's going to be happening over the next, um, next set of decades and centuries. And so obviously humans are, through fossil fuel burning, putting a tremendous amount of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, the moment it goes in, pretty much, within that year, um, half of it actually has already gone away. Um, a quarter has gone back into the terrestrial biosphere. Why that happens is... is not, it used to be a mystery. It's not so much of a mystery anymore. It's an effect, an effect known as CO2 fertilization. The other quarter of that unit of one carbon that went into the atmosphere is going into the ocean, dissolving in the ocean, which right. will be carried down into the deep ocean. But um, all this to say, we have carbon dioxide concentrations are rising in the atmosphere. I, the thing I'm most interested in understanding is how, um, hum, how natural processes are going to modify the uh, CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. So as we put CO2 in, how quickly can the ocean take it out? Right, so is, is there a sort of self-correcting mechanism? In the very long term, but the problem is that the timescale of, of ocean uptake for CO2 is too, is too long for us to avoid large rises in carbon dioxide and consequent uh, warming. So th theoretically, there is a system in place that could correct where we're at, but it can't keep up with what we're producing. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if, if we were to carry out an experiment, and we're more or less playing out, carrying out this experiment in human activities, but if we were just to double atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations overnight, what you would then have, so you'd have the sharp rise in carbon dioxide concentrations, and then they would gradually tail off and come back to the levels that they were previously. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is that tail yeah. is too long. And, uh, uh, what sort of scale are we talking about? Um, well, so, you know, we're already half of the carbon we're putting in is going away on an annual time scale, which is terrific. But uh, in terms of that tail has a has a time scale of order hundreds to a thousand years. And basically the, the key process there is the rate at which surface waters uh, in which we surf mm -hmm. um, exchange with underlying the underlying deep ocean, which represents most of the volume of the ocean. That is to say, how quickly carbon dioxide can make it out of the atmosphere, into the surface ocean, and then into the deep sea. Right. The, the deep ocean turns over very slowly on order hundreds to thousand, a thousand years, and, and that sort of the, gives you the time scale. And, right. and what biological impact does it have when the CO2 levels in the ocean start to build up in the way you described? Right, right. So there's the um, rise in carbon dioxide concentrations in surface waters lowers the pH, and it lowers what's known as the carbonate ion concentration in surface waters. This makes it harder for uh, corals to calcify any calcifying organism to do what it needs to do in its mode of living. So that's most shellfish. Shellfish, uh, corals, mm -hmm. 
And, and, and that's why we see a decline in the coral reefs around are, the world. There are a bunch of things hitting corals all at once. So um, there is also an effect known as coral bleaching. Mm-hmm. So corals are this remarkable symbiosis of an animal and uh, an, a plant, uh, an alga, um, which are known as zooxanthellae. The zooxanthellae live inside the corals. The corals eat, they feed. The, the nutrients they release, you know, we eat, we feed, we uh, pee our, or whatever, our waste <laughs> out back into the environment. Corals feed it, f- feed, use those nutrients to farm algae within themselves to gain additionally, additional chemical energy. Huh. Um, and in, under warm conditions, if you suddenly increase temperatures, um, that symbiosis can break down and it can lead to coral mortality. So you've got that effect compounded by... Um, ocean acidification, it's called, um, which makes many predictions for corals pretty dire. Um, I know a fair number of coral biologists who um, tell their children that they should go see coral reefs now um, because they may not be able to in 40, 50 years, 30, 40 years. I mean, that's, uh, that, I don't, it's, these are very hard things to predict, but, but the picture is not good. Now, what I should say is the, the process that will really take that carbon dioxide out of the system is the process that, it, that, takes, that takes carbon from surface waters into deep waters. And so both ocean acidification and global warming would be ameliorated if you could get surface waters to mix with deep waters faster. Right. Uh, I mean, I don't know how stupid a question this is, but is there any way to do that? Um, People are thinking about this, but basically, no. You know, when you think about the global environment, it is tremendously large. We should not overestimate our powers. We're pretty good at messing things up, but we are still puny in terms of our abilities to control our our environment. Um, So I I feel, I mean, having spoken to a few scientists like yourself, I have the feeling that we're destined for this in the probably in our lifetimes we're going to see huge changes to the ocean and to the climate and in a couple of generations time the world is going to look like a very different place possibly obviously it's very hard to predict because we don't have any other worlds where we've done the same experiment and seeing what happens but i think that um it's very easy to feel like well there's this huge problem i'm completely overwhelmed by it but i'm just me what can i do i mean is that the appropriate response is there there anything that we can do uh, and I was going to add on to that. Presumably, your uh, research—you were telling me where you, you're going into fossil records and looking back through climate change over centuries and millennia—and that presumably gives you quite a good insight as to how, uh, the, how what's going to happen as we go forward. It's happening at an accelerated rate, but right, exactly, Harry. So um, the you said we don't have any other planets to see how this would play out, and of course. We do have another planet. It's, well, it's a stupid thing to say. We do have another planet. Uh, just, it's our planet at a different time. Um, and so going back in Earth history provides us with an, a set of natural experiments. And so that's what we're really excited about doing right now is trying to read that climate history and understand how sensitive climate is to carbon dioxide changes um, and to other, other changes. Is there anything that we can do as a, as a species and as an individual? So that's a terrific question for many for people with different types of expertise or, or different backgrounds. There are probably many, many approaches to this. I am most hopeful about our potential to develop technologies to produce carbon-free energy, number one, and number two, uh, to 
remove carbon dioxide from most easily uh, CO2 production where you're burning fossil fuels. Yeah. Or what would be more challenging would be to actually scrub CO2 from the atmosphere. So in short, I am a, I am a technologist. I believe that we're going to need technology to get us um, out of this bind. It is very important to be efficient in your energy use. Um, there are all sorts of ways that one can reduce waste in one's life. But I think for an individual, I think they, they need to think about their agency as a political force, their ability to affect uh, the policies of their country in, tr in the context of low carbon uh, energy technologies and, and similar things. So I've been around a lot of uh, dinner tables with people where the subject of climate change comes up and, and it's become increasingly political over the last few months. And one of the things that you hear coming up, and, and this question has been addressed in a lot of sources online, and John Oliver did a great piece about it, but I just wanted to address it in, in the course of our conversation. There are some people who think that there is a controversy about whether this change in climate and CO2 levels is a naturally occurring event or man-made. And could you just tell us what the science tells us? Sure. Let me start by saying that scientists hate being put in the position of arguing for a consensus. Our, our instinct is to not believe our colleague, you know, is to be skeptical about everybody else's work, to be competitive, to try to find things that other people are doing wrong. So as scientists could not be, uh, as a community, could not be more poorly designed to represent a consensus. Yeah. Um, you couldn't have found a group that <laughs> least wants to do it. And that's what's great about science. And, then that, and you could argue that's also its strength. Um, that said, uh, there's no doubt that the carbon dioxide rise is human-driven. None. It, is the current warming dominantly driven by that CO2 rise? There are so many things I'd like to say about this, but first... If we didn't know there was warming, we would expect it. We would expect it based on the, the, the best current models. We would expect it based on the simplest back-of-the-envelope cal calculation you can do. It's not a complicated thing, uh, the greenhouse effect. And so it's very unlikely that the warming we've seen is not driven by the, the, the CO2 rise, and we know that the CO2 rise is driven by dominantly fossil fuel combustion. So you mentioned that you know you you see yourself as a technologist and you see you know the future human potential to develop technologies that can take us away. What is there anything? Uh, people often talk about nuclear as being a, a quick solution. People often have mentioned you know other technologies, wind and solar. Is there anything that that you've seen within your research that you, that you feel gives you hope? Is, that, is there a technology that stands out for you? My research does not address it. Um, right. Everything that you've, I mean, I think solar is surprising everybody in its um, expansion currently and the yeah. uh, decreasing price for the production of solar energy. And I think there's just ex extraordinary potential there. There, I have to say that I am surrounded by colleagues who are very interested in mechanisms for using fossil fuels and then sequestering the carbon dioxide that is released from them. Most easily, again, at the power plant. You generate, uh, the C you generate carbon dioxide when you burn fossil fuels to produce energy, and then you put that carbon dioxide somewhere. And there are a number of options. One is you can uh, uh, use it to accelerate the weathering rate of, of rocks. So you can imagine... Uh, sort of a, a human accelerated weathering process that not scavenges carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. You can imagine sequestering it uh, in deep saline aquifers. This is often known as carbon sequestration. That's the, the moniker it's been given. Um, 
other people uh, are sorry that sounds amazing what's what's that one can you say that in layman's terms uh, so this is sim- this is basically you know we 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 get fossil fuels um out of deep porous you know um storage regions in the earth's interior yeah. and similarly you can put you can imagine taking liquefied co2 and pumping it down into some of those areas and really we're talking about deep saline aquifers so deep groundwater very deep groundwater uh-huh. um, now there are all sorts of risks associated with that they're going to people people are going to say no this is you know this is just more modification of the earth when we've demonstrated that we're not very good stewards in the first place but again my my tendency is to think we're going to need a technology to help us yeah i mean I, I agree with you and i think that it's dangerous to start bringing the sort of the ideology of what well, we shouldn't mess with nature i think at this stage is it's probably fair to say we've we've messed with it a lot and we need to think about actively yeah uh, trying to fix it one one idea i've heard kicked around that i'd be i know this isn't quite your area but i'd just be interested to hear your your opinion on it is uh, a person if not a scientist i've heard people talk about how solar technology is progressing and i've watched it incrementally improve in a surprisingly quick pace over the last few years and it's not this doesn't seem any one big leapfrog but it seems like incrementally it's getting better and better and better and will probably ultimately be the answer and i've heard people talk about using nuclear like you mentioned harry as a stopgap, using the argument that look we could do nuclear we can do it safe there have been accidents but the technology now really makes those accidents so minimal and when you compare it to the 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 dangers of using fossil fuels and the CO2 going up, it's, it's just a no-brainer. And then we could do that for a couple of hundred years. We can deal with the nuclear waste of a couple of hundred years, which gives us a stopgap to really develop solar. And I, I find that just as a layperson, that seemed to make sense just in a common sense way to me. I, I don't know what your reaction to that idea is. Right. Well, you know, in the United States, we've had a very hard time of addressing the nuclear waste issue. There's a very strong, uh, not in my backyard, Yeah. Um, response and uh, that I completely understand. What I, the one thing I would add to what you said is that we're probably, I'm not sure that we're actually s- centuries away from a carbon-free energy technology. So I, I think that if nuclear had to step in as a stopgap, we wouldn't be talking about centuries. We'd be talking about decades to a century. Oh, interesting. Well, so maybe there's some hope for us. There has to be hope for it. <laughs> I really hope so. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you so much for coming up, Daniel. I think we uh, probably should wrap this up so that we can uh, go for a surf. <laughs> I'm the for conditions that. are good. The winds are offshore. I think we should go and make the most of the ocean while it's uh, while it's still alkaline enough. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. Oh, thanks a lot. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. Our next interview is with the filmmaker Heather Hudson. Well, you and Jess got the opportunity to uh, interview her recently. Yes, we did. Heather has made, she's on her second film now. It's that both films are sort of focused around a group of ordinary but perhaps extraordinary women and it kind of tells the story of their involvement with surfing um, whether it be just a lifestyle choice uh, a few of them are professional surfers or have been at some stage in their lives and it's just a wonderful bit of filmmaking from Heather really great storytelling some good footage of surfing um, and just cool stories generally Um, Heather was in town with Joni Sternbach, the photographer who did the Surfland series. If uh, guys yeah, she takes that. beautiful photos. And actually, Matt Arney did an article on her about a year or so ago for Surf yeah. Simply magazine. That's right. She does photographs, which she then develops right there on the beach. Yeah. Not, not digital camera photos, but she uses what kind of camera it's is it? It's a tintype process. And so the, it's, it's a particular, particular chemical reaction on a piece of metal slate. And in some way, it reacts. And uh, it actually does a negative 
or a reverse negative of the image. And so as you're watching it develop, uh, it goes from white to black. It's very, very interesting. If anyone gets the chance to have a look at it live, it's a really cool process. Um, but so she was in town with uh, Joni, um, and because Joni did a lot of the photo photography for the film. And so Heather very kindly sat down with Jesse and I at an incredibly noisy cafe. So sorry about all the background noise. We didn't realize until we listened to the recording that there's lots of blenders and music and all sorts of things in the background. So apologies in advance for that. Hello, everybody. We're sat here at the Harmony Hotel in a wonderful jungle garden. It's very hot, very sticky, and <laughs> quite a few mosquitoes. But we're here with Heather Hudson, the filmmaker who first of all made The Women in the Waves, uh, which we love at Surf Simply, and now has just finished The Women in the Waves 2. And we were lucky enough to go to the um, Playa Guiones premiere last night at the Harmony Hotel, and Heather agreed to have a sit down with us and discuss um, her film. So, welcome, Heather. Hello, welcome, welcome to me, welcome to you. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. I'm so thank excited you. to be here. Great, thank you for being here. We were talking about how both films have given, not necessarily ordinary women, but, but uh, you've given a group of women a voice and a platform to project their emotions, uh, you know, about the surf and surfing as a sport, but also as, as an experience. Well, um, yeah, I like to think that they're extraordinary, mm -hmm. Yeah, but there's so many extraordinary people yeah. in the yeah. world and the, the media tends to focus the mass media of surfing and elsewhere tends to focus on a small small group of people and with surfing you're just with everybody mm -hmm. we're all out there together it, it changes all the time who you're with you know how the conditions are everything so everybody's got their own experience and they bring their own life experience to the water yeah and um, I feel like with women us as women have a lot to offer and our opinions are valuable and our viewpoint is valuable. Absolutely. And we may not be exactly the same as men, thank God. <laughs> you know, we're all different yeah. and we all add our own contribution. Mm -hmm. That's what was, I thought in my opinion, that was really, you could see that in the movie, so many different types of women, but yet they all were just so inspirational. I mean, you had progressive surfers, you had longboarders, and it was cool to see that even though they're different, that they were the same. And everybody's connected somehow. I mean, some some girls knew each other way back. Like Mary Bagalso, she was pro surfer back in the, I guess, you know, when the longboard came back and the women were really starting to get big. And, in you know, the magazines were, were out and women's magazines mm -hmm. were published at that time. You know, she was a cover girl and all that. So I remember when I first met her, <laughs> I was like scared to meet her <laughs> and uh, it's so funny you know, oh my god Mary Begalso she's one of my my idols but um so Mary is now Mary's an anesthesiologist nurse. yes is that right she, in the army you know it, and that's the thing with surfing you know it's our passion but we have to have a living we all need to figure out how we're gonna make a living and make surfing part of our life mm -hmm. and each one of these women I believe just as the first film but I didn't talk about what they did in the first film so much but these women have integrated surfing into their lives and are doing really good work and you know I think we lack in surfing the positive female role models because again that media picks the small group of people that yes they surf well and they're beautiful and they're young and that's awesome mm -hmm. it is I mean watching Steph Gilmore mm -hmm. surf a wave is just Lakey Peterson all of them but you know there's just so much more to all ages of women. Yeah. Yeah. 
and have made it their life passion. Jeanette Prince, she's um, in the film, she's 60. And the youngest, Isabel Reyes, is uh, 20. <laughs> I loved it when in the film when Jeanette was talking about how um, she has all these things going on in her life that she has to balance equally, that from home life surfing, keeping fit so she can surf, all these different things. It's that sort of classic stereotype of a, of a woman being better at multitasking. Well, this is kind of a lot more than multitasking, isn't it? It's the extreme it's, side, you know? It's true, but I think anybody that has a passion and, you know, it's interesting you're talking about that because for each woman that I have chosen, something about them I can relate to. Mm -hmm. I went to school. You know, I finished UCLA in 1984. Mm -hmm. I wanted to surf. I just, you know, how did? I, how am I going to keep surfing in my life? You mm -hmm. know, so there's Isabel, you yeah. know, and then there's Demi, who's awesome. Demi <laughs> is just so amazing. And I feel like all their personalities are just so different, yet they all complement each other. Yeah. 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 Um, our yeah. head coach, Jesse, used to surf against Demi in oh, the did? NSSA. Oh, so do you guys know each other then? I, I mean, I don't know if she remembered me, but I trained for the USA team. Yes. And I mean, Courtney Conalong was there, Sage Erickson, and she was one of the girls. But she was one of the girls that I talked to, like, Oh, that week that I'm I was sure she'd training. remember you. I she, hope so. She, she remembers everyone. <laughs> I think I'm like awesome. the only redhead that was there at the time, so maybe <laughs> she would. You know, it's funny. I took a trip with Isabel and Demi uh, to do a lot of the footage, and uh, they both just, you know, rip on shortboards, mm -hmm. rip on longboards. And I have, um, you know, great footage of Demi on a, like, I don't know, it must be a 9-0 soft top. I mean, we were down at a house that we were just borrowing boards, and Demi is ripping on a soft top. <laughs> and in the, actually, in the outtakes, there's a funny line. <laughs> She's like, and I was on a soft top. That's <laughs> just the funniest line. Yeah, she had anyway, so much personality in her interview. You know? yeah. She does. And, yeah. and then there's Isabel, who's just like the dreamer, mm -hmm. you know, and, and just has so many ideas yeah. about The beekeeper. The beekeeper. Yeah, the beekeeper. yeah. And then, you know, so there's Ashley Lloyd Thompson, yeah. Who you may know. She's an amazing shaper. Yeah. She was in my first film. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and she and Zoo Pesson were very connected. Yeah. And so that's where this film it grew out of. Right. The first one. Yeah. Yeah. So that that connection to them. Um, there's a line in the first film where Ashley says, Zoo, she's my sister mama. That's <laughs> what she calls her, sister mama. Yeah. And then in this film it's her it's you know, she's her sister daughter. Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, they had a really tight friendship and Really great relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Zoof was like that for so many people. How has meeting these women and interviewing these women and becoming them becoming part of your life, how has that changed you? How has oh that impacted God. your life? Completely changed <laughs> my life. Um, you know, I was on a mission to make that first film, and I'm not a filmmaker. I'm an accidental filmmaker. And I, I didn't even pick up the camera for the first one. My uh, co-producer and partner, Tech Ewer, um, filmed and edited, I directed and produced. And I was scared of the camera, I mean, it's so funny. But I used to do photography, and then the second film came along, and I was like, I've gotta do this, I'm gonna do it. And the digital cameras were coming out, and the GoPros, and all that, so I just, I had done art and photography when I was younger, and then got sidetracked through life, um, motherhood. <laughs> you know, my boys are 21 and 25 now, so. But um, anyway, back to your questions. I cold called Linda Benson for Women in the Waves 1. Mm -hmm. I wanted, I had an idea that I wanted all ages of women because with the Women in the Waves 1, basically that idea was, now that idea for me is about 10 years old, but it's like women have always surfed. 
women have always served. And it's like over here, you know, I'm raising my hand as I'm speaking. Yeah. Recognition to women that the pioneers, decade by decade, who went out there. And, you know, I always say for myself, you really had to want to be out there back in the 70s, back in the 80s. You did. Mm -hmm. You had to fight for your waves, and you were mostly always the only girl. There were handfuls. Like, I remember in Malibu, there was a handful of girls, and some that I looked up to because they ripped, and <laughs> they were just awesome. So anyway, that's, you know, meeting Linda. We are life. We're going to be lifelong friends. We all take a trip together. Jeanette Prince uh, Zoof was part of that group, and... Um, we have a great group of women that go down with Linda once a year down to Mexico. Yeah. And I'll do it as long as Linda wants to. It's <laughs> yeah. awesome. Linda Benson being the first lady to paddle out at Waimea. She did, and yeah. she was 15 when she did that. Yeah. Oh, my God. 15 years old. She's yeah. 15. So Linda Benson was sponsored by Velzi. She's from California, is that yes. right? Yeah. Yep. So she was sponsored by Velzi at the time. Mm -hmm. And Velzi said, I'll pay for your ticket to get there so you can enter the competition, but I won't pay for you to get back. And she ended up winning. <laughs> She won the, yeah, the she women's, won the contest, yeah. and she ended up, um, she's told me she had some friends, you know, back then, every, well, still now this happens, people stay with friends, and she was young, and um, she stayed at some friends' houses, and, and luckily, I guess, Bud Brown's footage, uh, he got that shot of her, and uh, lots of neat stills and things mm -hmm. from that period, that winter, when she went over. Yeah, yeah. Did you find when you were surfing back then, when there was handfuls of, of women out surfing, any difference in between respect? Like, did you guys have respect then? Because I feel surfing out here, when you see a girl out surfing, like, you get tons of respect. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were, I grew up surfing in Malibu, Surfrider Beach, you know, from the late 70s. You know, you're like the little sister okay, of the cool. guys, you know? Yeah. And it's funny back then because a lot of those guys, I really didn't know who they were. And the funny part is, I thought they were old. Mm -hmm. I was 16. And... I'd watch old surf movies later and go, oh, wait, there's Lance Carson. You know, Lance used to hang out at Malibu. We all had a group that we hung out with back in the 80s, early 80s. So, you know, and all the people change as every decade goes by. There's different people that hang out. But, no, I feel like there was, but I also respect, mm -hmm. as you're saying. But I think that, you know, like Jeanette Prince, she talks about, for her, she served Huntington Beach and in the early 70s, you know, we were, it was sort of like, what are you doing out here? You're not taking that seriously. Mm -hmm. But I had huge role models to look up to. Then those women, you know, Margot Ober, mm -hmm. Rel Sun was incredible. Mm -hmm. And we really, I think now, because there's so much content, we get to see surfing all the time. When we were growing up, you didn't see it. Yeah. You might get a magazine and you know, you look at the magazine, you just didn't see it. So now it's just incredible mm. what is out there. Yeah. And the progression is a lot quicker, faster too, I think, for everybody, because they can see a move and try it. And So Isabel and Demi, are um, they are perhaps your youngest interviewees, certainly. For this film, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you, have you seen personally a difference in, say, the older generation of female surfers to the younger generation, you know, like... Demi and Isabel have, have perhaps grown up with more of an equal playing field than, oh, than certainly, you know, for your generation. Or, oh, yeah. Or, you know. Because all the surf camps came out. You know, those things started, I think, when was that? In the 90s, late 90s. So, like, my kids' generation, their generation, um, they grew up with their parents putting them in surf camp, just mm -hmm. like soccer camp. Because it's funny, my boys don't surf. They played baseball and soccer and mountain bike and all that. 
as parents, we put them in camps. So now I think the young kids, they're all surfing together. Mm-hmm. They, and a lot of the young women, they don't see themselves as different. Yeah. They don't. And so now we're 20 years into that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's just an equal playing field. Yeah. yeah, I never saw myself different than my brother or my brother's friends. I always wore the same clothes as them, oh, yeah. surfed the same waves as them. Like, it definitely... Well, see, I'm, I was born in 1961. Yeah. So, it's like, we were told, girls don't do that. You know, mm-hmm. boys do this and girls do that. Mm-hmm. And then I was a teenager through the 70s and the whole feminist movement. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> we can do that. So mm-hmm. it's interesting yeah. just to see how it's changed. Yeah. And in just 50 years, really. I know. Like it's a short period of time to go from um, from not being accepted to, to now the, the Women's World Tour is, is now oh, and it's huge so coverage. Neat. And it's neat. I was just watching the... Um, you know, the Honolulu Bay contest yeah. and it's all streaming. So we can, yesterday it was raining here and I just watched. It's so amazing. Yeah. It's fun. It's yeah. fun to be able to yeah. watch. Final question. Um, what would you hope your, uh, the audience gains from this film, from your film? Well, the message of this particular film was to live each day and enjoy each moment because we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. Mm-hmm. And um, my friend Zoof, uh, was an inspiration for me to make this film and I didn't have a plan but when the same month I got the news that Zoof was going to pass away three years ago now she had fought cancer for 20 years and then the same month within a month Ashley Lloyd Thompson her dear friend and my dear friend uh, found out she was pregnant and I thought oh my god that's the circle of life mm-hmm. and Um, all the changes through life, but I think that women, and I think I said this in the beginning, our perspective is really um, valuable. That's what I would want people to take away, that we're not, we're different, but just because we're different and we approach the wave differently, more gracefully, or however people want to describe it, we don't have to surf like a guy, because we were always told we weren't good. They're not surfing like a guy. Well, let's embrace that women are valuable with what they do and how Mm -hmm. they approach things. Great. That's it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Our final interview for this episode is with another of our guests from the Surf Simply Resort. Larry Burke, the owner of Outside Magazine, came to stay with us just before Christmas, and uh, you got a chance to sit down with him, Ash. Yeah, I was so excited to sit down with Larry, mainly because Outside Magazine's been sitting on my parents' coffee table since I was a little kid. So I was really, really excited to to chat with them. And for our listeners that might not be familiar with Outside Magazine, they were pretty much the first outdoor lifestyle-based publication. So before that, there was you know the running magazines, there were surfing magazines, there was fishing publications. But Outside's the first one that kind of all brought it together under one umbrella. It's yeah, Outside's quite a unique thing. Growing up in the UK. It's not a magazine that you find, but I don't know that we've even got a comparison because it, it takes, you know, it's a little bit of mountain biking, it's a little bit of sailing, a little, a little bit of every outdoor sport you can imagine. The outdoor sports equivalent of a polymath. You know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah I, I, I thought it was a, it's a really cool concept because uh, no one else did it at the time when he came, when he uh, started it up. Because he, rather than saying this is a magazine about skiing, he was saying this is a magazine for people who think in this way. And this is stuff we think that you'll find interesting. Yeah, basically he's a guy that had a lot of interests and he, there, just, there was a total gap in the newsstand when you went there. So yeah, I was so excited to, to have that chat with him. 
All right, so today on the podcast, we are fortunate enough to have someone that I'm very excited to have a conversation with, Lorenzo Burke. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much, Asher. It's a pleasure to be here. So for our listeners that may not know, tell them a little bit about yourself. Who are you? How have you come to be here? Well, first of all, my name uh, is Larry Burke. Uh, My wife calls me Lorenzo. She's Italian, and her uncle Vincenzo gave me that nickname over in Italy uh, a long time ago, and it just kind of stuck since we uh, now live in New Mexico and, of course, uh, very Hispanic culture in New Mexico. So when you hear someone call me Lorenzo, that's why. Yeah, I love it. So you are one of the founders of Outside Magazine. Well, and I'm actually the, the only founder. The sole founder of Outside <laughs> Magazine. And am I correct in saying the current editor-in-chief as well? You are correct. Yeah, I've had that title uh, ever since I gave it to myself. And basically, uh, it allows me to work on both sides of the fence, so to speak. I can work on the business side uh, or the creative editorial side, um, uh, depending upon where I feel... Uh, the need is or where I feel I can help most. Traditionally, the media world has a kind of unwritten rule about separation of church and state, separation of business from from editorial content. In our case, since I'm both business and on the creative side, we sort of bypass that traditional uh, idea. Very cool. So Outside Magazine's been around since... The 70s, correct? Uh, February of 1976 was the first issue we put out. How did, how did Outside Magazine come about? Uh, well, basically, I was traveling for five years um, when I left IBM in uh, the late 60s. thought I was only going to be gone for three months, but that three-month uh, notion quickly fell by the wayside, and I ended up just roaming around the world for five years doing a variety of things, uh, some related to, mostly related to, I guess, uh, all the outside experiences that we read about in the magazine today. But to skip right to the idea itself, I was sailing my little 30-foot sloop back from the Southern Caribbean and uh, had been approached by guys who said I should write the story of what I've been doing for the last five years. And I guess it finally sunk into the point where I said, well, that'd be a great way to make a living. You know, I could be, I could write from anywhere. I can do anything I want and, and, and write in that location, no matter where it was. So um, I thought, well, that's it. When I get my boat back to Florida, I'm going to start writing this book. And I didn't realize at the time how difficult it is to really write well and how much uh, actually goes into, you know, the research part of it and, and you know, everything that goes into creating a, a really fine novel. And that's what I had in mind. So I thought, well, what I should probably do first is go to the newsstand and maybe select some magazines that I could write for, uh, do shorter stories and things like this. So uh, when I went to the newsstand, I was really looking for outside and it finally dawned on me that that it wasn't on the newsstand. I mean, there were a lot of vertical magazines having to do with sailing and skiing and climbing and diving and, you know, all the vertical sports, which is how we refer to, um, you know, a single subject uh, mm-hmm. magazine in the, in the business. And uh, what I wanted to do was cover the entire world outside, all the contemporary sports that uh, all my friends enjoyed, that I enjoyed, uh, with a particular sensitivity towards the environment uh, to become a big part of my life since I was eight years old going to camp in Colorado. So, you know, we incorporated this whole ethos into the initial idea of outside and what 
it was going to be. That was a little strange for advertisers to understand at first because Mm -hmm. they were used to saying, you know, okay, I understand. You are either a ski magazine or you are a fishing magazine or you are a boating magazine. or They couldn't quite find a niche for us. So we created this genre of, you know, lifestyle that goes from season to season throughout the year and recognize that people enjoy more than one passion outside. So That's so interesting because yeah, most surf publications are really, really slanted to just about surfing. But I've personally found that a lot of times people that are passionate about surfing are also passionate about other outdoor activities, you know, whether it's fishing. I know especially coming from Florida, fishing and surfing often go together. We get so many guests here who are, are into skiing or and that's just kind of a, a kind of a round microcosm of everything and outside. Yeah, well, you know, uh, way back in the day, and I, I, I can remember this vividly, uh, we did a cover shot of Mark Fu seconds before he died. And it was, you know, a long time ago now, and I, I really can't remember much about the lore. I remember, I believe it was, and I'm not even sure about this, but I think it was at Mavericks. It was at Mavericks. In- okay, but I can remember that image that we that we took and it was, I mean, literally probably a second before he fell. Yeah. Um, but the image on the cover was just one of the, one of the, I mean, we've produced a lot of covers now, and it's one that just stays with me. One of the and iconic ones. Yeah, yeah, one of the iconic ones for sure. It was an, a massive green wave on the cover. And here he is coming down. I believe he was, you know, he's, of course, coming straight down and then trying to angle uh, as he was heading towards the bottom a little bit into a right break, I believe. Mm-hmm. He's going by memory now. But, man, it was powerful. It yeah. was really powerful. Surfing has just, I love the photography. I love the whole culture. I didn't grow up on the ocean anywhere so it was kind of you know just a, a, an idea in the back of my head for so long and frankly I'm, I'm just thrilled that I finally discovered a way to start surfing and a lot of that had to do with one of our editors who came down here Mary Turner who's deputy deputy editor of outside came down to surf simply and wrote a glowing piece about her experience at Surf Simply, which was then read by a friend of mine who I went to school with, and he said, hey, this is the Otter Bar, which is a kayaking camp that I I used to go to for 10 years, and he said, this is the Otter Bar of Surfing, which was a huge compliment because they literally are probably the best kayak camp in the world. I said, well, if if they're the Otter Bar of Surfing, we've got to go down there. we got to go. we got to go. Yeah, I remember actually your friend that came down, Digger, I taught him that first trip and he told me that he's like, you guys are like the Otter Bar of surfing. And Otter Bar was one of those things in the back of my head that I hadn't heard for years. My parents went on an anniversary trip. No kidding. Uh, probably maybe 15 years ago now and they just had the best time ever. So I was like, oh, what oh, a compliment. Oh, that is a great compliment and a great coincidence. So you had this life built around adventure predating the magazine and a lot of that adventure was around water, right? Yeah, it was a lot around water. I spent a lot of time sailing. I've spent I spent like ten years windsurfing. Uh, tried kiteboarding, but I I could never put enough time together uh, with the proper wind conditions lasting long enough to really nail it. So, but I have spent a lot of time around the oceans in the water. But fortunately, uh, I finally was able to uh, sort of direct my ocean or water activities towards surfing. I mean, I, I, it's it's better late than never, right? No, oh, of course. <laughs> 
I agree. So w- what do you think was the factor that made it take so long to come to surfing? Because I hear that a reoccurring theme week in, week out, and people are like, man, I've always wanted to learn to surf, but there's been some sort of factor that's, that's yeah. kept you from it. Well, in our case, you know, first of all, I, I grew up in Chicago, and there, there just wasn't a surf community there. Mm-mm. So, you know, when we moved out to New Mexico, which was 25 years ago now, I still haven't found the beach in New Mexico. So those are, th- those are kind of the factors that kept me more uh, mountain and river oriented, except when I would go on vacation and, you know, I'm still working it outside. So, you know, it's, it's not like I have just months to devote to going somewhere and, you know, really, really putting the time in that it takes to get good enough, as good as you want to get uh, at a new sport. And, uh, but I'm going to, I'm dedicated now. I, I, my wife, my wife is a total surfaholic. Uh, she just came to me one day and said, I want to learn how to surf. And I'm like, uh, really? Sure. Hey. And so I said, let's, well, do let's do it. You know, I know just where to go. So that's, uh, you know, that's, that's again, why it took so long to, to, to finally, uh, get around it. Needless to say, if I had grown up in a beach community, I'd have been surfing a long time ago. Yeah, it's too bad because some of your adventures, especially sailboats, sailboats have a lot of room to, you can just store a surfboard on the deck and you're they, right around some good they, conditions. They do indeed. I, and, and really, I, I'm, I'm remiss at, at not having got aboard and gotten in the uh, surf earlier. <laughs> I don't know. There's kind of this uh, common misconception that if you don't learn to surf as a kid, basically a child growing up, that it's kind of out of reach. And I, I think it's just that. It's a misconception. I mean, we, we show every day that it's, Surfing's low impact, and it's for everyone. No question about it. In fact, I can't wait to get my granddaughter involved. And, and now that my wife and I have started surfing, I know so many kids of friends who want to get to the ocean, want to start surfing on the East Coast, West Coast. And the pictures you see of these little kids, I'm, I'm four, five, six, seven years old out there in the waves i mean it's just it's it's just pretty as hell watching them i love it yeah even here at the end of the beach uh where we teach in, in this our applied guiones there's a such a crew of, of kids coming up surfing here oh yeah you can see them all up and down the beach it's fantastic in fact sometimes i just find myself standing there looking at these kids for a few minutes before i even paddle back out i mean it's so fun to watch them <laughs> yeah it really is and, i agree and, yeah and of course anything i mean the earlier you start the, the the easier it is i think to learn and uh the more fun you're going to have later on yeah but i mean even learning it late so you're in your early 70s i'm in my early 70s most and I'm people, actually getting younger every year. So yeah, I'm, I'm counting I've backwards noticed. now. I'm counting backwards now. You're the Benjamin Button. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm Benjamin Button. I love it. Um, but how, how is your experience with that? Is, is there anything you found difficult? Well, I do, a, I do a lot of skiing. and I do some big mountain skiing, heli skiing. I've uh, been skiing for a long time. So, uh, you know, my, my balance, and, I, and I, I compete on, I've competed on horses for 20 years. I play competitive tennis. Uh, a lot of things that require a lot of quick reactions and coordination and, and coordination and, and foot movement and, and all of that kind of thing. Those things are kind of second nature to me, you know, because I started, you know, I started skiing 55 years ago and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, it's a lot of muscle memory built into the brain with regard to things you've been doing for a long time. So right now I find the, the challenge and, and it's, it's a, such a fun challenge, but the challenge is really putting all the pieces together while the surface underneath 
you is moving. Is constantly changing. Is constantly changing. I mean, this is kind of a different sensation, for example, from skiing, where, you know, the snow's not moving. It's just you and your skis moving. Mm -hmm. uh, surfing, you've got that third element where the whole ocean is moving underneath your board. And uh, so getting used to that is actually a really welcome challenge. I mean, I love that idea. I think it's going to make me better at other things that I do as well. But, you know, uh, frankly, I even, I even love falling in the waves. I mean, when I get thrown off the face of a wave and I'm getting, you know, swirled around underneath in the washing machine, I mean, it's kind of fun. Yeah, it, it is. is I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the impact of surfing sure is less than falling on a mountain. Yeah. And you're mountain biking it's, and you fall off and hit a tree. That's exactly. that's just not yeah. fun. Yeah, it's, it's fun falling in the water. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the outside magazine slogan is live bravely. How do you think that relates to your experience with surfing? Um, you know, first of all, Live Bravely is, uh, you know, I, I, I discovered Living Bravely while I was sitting around with some friends in a, in a bar in Santa Fe called The Cowgirl. We go there every Friday night and probably slam down a couple of tequilas and tell lies to each other. And, uh, you know, for, for, for some reason, this idea of Living Bravely just came into my mind. And, and it doesn't really apply just to things outside. In other words, just to adventure sports and stuff like that. What I love about it is it applies to those things, but it also applies to life in general. I mean, you know, you can be living bravely having certain conversations with your wife. You know, you can be living bravely in a lot of ways, you know, making a lot of different kinds of decisions about your own life. And uh, so I love it from the standpoint that it's, it has, carries such a broad message inside a few simple words. I love it. I think it applies to pretty much everything. It's yeah. kind of empowering. Most definitely. I mean, that's what everybody thinks of first, you know, in terms of, 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 our, of our slogan, live bravely. But uh, yeah, definitely. In fact, it, it, it's, it's kind of useful to remind yourself of that. If I've, you know, I've got live bravely slogans on the back of my cell phone, on, on my computer at the office, you know, reminders all over the place. In fact, I even put one on the door in my villa right now. <laughs> I love it. It's the last thing you see before yeah, going and surfing in the morning. It's the last thing before I see before we, go, before we go out in the morning, and it kind of inspires me a little bit. If it's a steep face, you're going to try and get on that thing anyway, and you're going to try and, you know, make yeah, that make that it. left or right break and, and, and survive it and try to get down the line and, you know, all the things that you haven't, you haven't been able to do yet. So to go. me, I just, you know, I think, okay, now live bravely this morning. We're going out surfing. It's always funny in surfing is that whenever you're worried about it, it's, it's like the, the fear that you have that gets you. Well, the, you know, the thing of it is when, when you're starting out like I am and you can find a place that, not only teaches um, how to surf, but all the dynamics that go into the formation of waves, uh, all the things related to safety, related to etiquette. I mean, Surf Simply does just such an incredible job of covering the whole landscape uh, of surfing that it, it gives people confidence that, hey, we're going to be all right out there. You know, I understand I'm learning not just how to surf, but everything that surrounds the elements that allow us to surf and how waves are formed and how, you know what you look for when you first go out there in the morning um, and just so many useful things that you just would not get. I did try to surf a couple of times you know before coming to surf simply. I mean it was like a day here and then 10 years later a day there and and I look back and I just shake my head I'm going oh, what no. was I doing you know I mean because you guys have really organized the program in such a in such an incredible way that it just 
like the first, before I even left, the first time I came here, I signed up for the next time I was coming here because there's such an incredible wait list <laughs> to get back here. I mean, that's the way everybody is. I love we're, it. We're all putting ourselves on the waiting list. You know, you want to, I'm not sure which is my favorite season yet because I've only been here now in, in an April and, uh, and now, of course, uh, December. So I, I'm probably going to experiment with some other months just to see what it's like. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it changes a bit, but it's the constant is we always have surf. That's yeah. the nice thing well, about it's nice. It's, it's nice at the tail end of the rainy season, which we're here this time. So, um, you know, it's good to see the moisture. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a, as a desert dweller in Santa Fe, New Mexico, I appreciate, I appreciate rain. You know, we had, and, and frankly, I loved surfing in the rain this time. I thought that was a blast. Yeah, that's great. And we're, lo- we're lucky. A lot of listeners are in the Southern California area, the LA area where rain signifies do not go surfing because of the runoff. But here yeah. it's, it's nice. It's, it's oh, yeah, and we had the best of, and we had the best of both worlds because it both rained the first couple of days and then it cleared up and got sunny and just gorgeous. Great sunsets, great morning, you know, getting up at, I mean, you don't even mind getting up at 6 a.m. if you're going out to the beach to surf. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. So surfing obviously has these variables that change a lot. You're a man who's probably tried his hand at more sports, had more experiences, whether in, in, in the outdoors or the business world or anything else. What could you most compare it with, your experience with learning to surf? Boy, that's a good question. Um, probably, well, let me answer it this way. I think every new sport that I've ever gotten into has had a, a, a is, has been a different experience in terms of the learning curve. I mean, there's there are certainly common things that you you know go through, especially when it comes to outdoor sports and adventure sports and that kind of thing. Um, there always is a counterintuitiveness about most of the outside sports. I love that. And, and that's probably the most difficult thing for everybody to get over. If it's whitewater kayaking, I mean, you know, you don't, you just don't want to lean down the river. You want to lean back and that's the worst thing to do. And in the same way with skiing, you, you know, you, you, oh, you're on a, you're on a, going off some Cornish or something, you know, and, and you want to sit back, but again, you want to get forward. You want to get over those skis. Same thing I've discovered out here, uh, you know, when we first started surfing and, and, and either, you know, one of the, one of the guys is saying, now you want to, you want to put your weight forward on that board when that when that because you want to go faster to yeah. get to, you know to get so so that you don't do a header into exactly. the bottom of that wave and I'm thinking well that's that sounds like I'm going to be in a position to do you know a, a header for like... sure and so you know you got to relive oh this is right this is all counterintuitive I've been through the counterintuitive stuff before and this is just another you know, sport that has the counterintuitive element to it. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about surfing is how many things that your your body is telling you, no, absolutely, I do not want to put my weight forward at the top of this wave because right. I am going into right. the abyss. But that right. actually is the most effective way to handle this situation. Exactly, exactly. And it takes a while to, you know, get your head wrapped around that. You know, of course. You, you want to move back an inch or two on the board instead of, you know, just getting forward with your weight and, and, and on the board. So... You know, those kind of things have similarities to everything else I've done, and it always represents the same kind of counterintuitive challenge you got to get over with. you exactly. got to get over in your, in your mind. So where do you think surfing is going to take you from here? Do you think you... You mean physically, what location? Physically, what location? Well, um, you know, I've, now that I'm looking around, we're going to Puerto Rico. 
Love Puerto uh, Rico. in March. And so we'll be surfing there. And way out on the bucket list, you know, as soon as I really feel like, you know, I can, I can um, do some of the things that I want to do, then I'd like to go to the Maldives, frankly, and check it out there. I've never been there. I've actually never been to the Maldives, but I spent two months in Indonesia this year, and it's beautiful. Yeah, well, it's, that part of the world uh, has some great, some great breaks. I understand, and and you can always find something that's to your skill set, skill level. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's what I want. I mean, I, otherwise, I probably wouldn't even bother taking that long of a trip because we can go right down to Mexico. You know, it's pretty easy from New Mexico to get down to the coast and Baja or further um, south. So. But I, I just have this thing now, okay, I, you know, I'm learning how to surf. I, I, I think I can, you know, manage to get myself around to the other side of the world and, yeah. and, and, and in order to, you know, surf over there. So obviously waves are a bit of a limited resource. And the waves in your front yard are never as good as the waves that you perceive, you know, a million miles away. So it does inspire people to travel a lot. Yeah, you know? yeah. Whereas you may not go to the Maldives or you may not go to Sri Lanka or, or some part of Africa Right, surfing opens up those doors. It yeah. kind of gives you the outlet yeah. to go well, there. That's right. I probably wouldn't go if it wasn't for surfing. There you go. And yeah. you're a man who's been to a lot of places. I've been to a lot of places, and uh, it takes it takes a little bit something special to get me to travel that far these days. Oh, it's beautiful. Did you ever been down to Central America pre-surfing? Yeah. Well, actually, after the first time down at at Surf Simply, my wife and I spent three days up in Nicaragua. Um, uh, kind of doing a little surfing up there. But yeah, I've been down to uh, Costa Rica and Nicaragua fishing before. We used to come down here to fish for snook. Speaking my language. Yeah. I love snook fishing down oh, here. Oh, snook is, is one of the best sports fish and one of the best eating fishes. Uh, my ever, personal favorite. My personal favorite too. I didn't want to. I didn't want to toss it all, all, all. You know, give it that much credit. But you're right. It is the best sports fish and the best eating fish I think I've ever had. It's snook fishing. You got to know your tides. You got to know your conditions. Your you wind. See, your a equipment. Lot of, a lot of similarities. A lot of similarities. Yeah. Couple differences. The yeah. snook's not going to slam you on the reef. That's right. That's but you got to know your stuff before yeah. going out there. Yeah, you do. Oh, yeah. that's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Before we part ways and go get a little afternoon surf, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Probably just one, Asher, and that would be uh, never let age hold you back and don't wait too long. That's beautiful. You think that it's accessible for, for any age? I certainly do. I mean, obviously, you have to you know, be in some sort of physical condition, but you know, that's easy enough to manage. Uh, most people you know, that live an outside lifestyle keep themselves in pretty good shape anyway. And if you don't, it just takes a, a few weeks or months in the gym and you're ready to go. Perfect. Well, do you have any advice for someone that's preparing to undertake a, a, a new activity or, or, or anything in life? I, I think you know, in, in terms of getting in shape, what I've always focused on and what's helped me a lot and what I would recommend to people is just, you know, try and keep it simple. And what I what I do to keep it simple is I think of three things. I think a, a strength, balance, and endurance. And if you can do things that re, that revolve around those three ideas, you'll be prepared to do anything. So that's the same advice for if I decide to go whitewater rafting this year. Exactly. I'm paying attention strength, to that balance, advice. balance, and endurance. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, Asher. Always uh, a pleasure. Yeah, it, it, it's been a pleasure having you around this week. And I'm personally pretty excited to see how your surfing develops. And um, yeah, for any of the listeners, if you haven't already, which I, I can't imagine you have it, check out Outside Magazine in the near future. Well, thanks. Uh, thank you, Asher. And, and everybody who hasn't checked out Surf Simply yet, 
please do so. Come on down, guys. Come on down. Okay. I, uh, I hope you enjoyed those three interviews. Please do let us know. Give us some feedback on, on, on what you enjoyed, and we'll uh, hopefully get some more interviews over the, uh, over the coming year. Before we leave you, uh, our regular What to Watches. You got anything for us, Asher? Yeah, I'm going to recommend a short film by Morgan Mason that he did for Billabong, Billabong Women specifically, called A Tall Odyssey. And it was a trip in the Maldives, and it was just really beautiful editing. Mm-hmm. Pretty much anything Morgan Mason's done is worth watching. Yeah, Morgan Mason's pretty much revolutionized the, the way that women surfing has been captured. So, yeah, I, I think it was great. We ran it a couple of weeks ago on the magazine page of our Surf Simply website. So you, some of you guys might recognize it from there. But, yeah, check it out. Very cool. Uh, Will? Yeah, Mason Ho's O'Neill Wave of the Winter entry. It is insane. The man's uh, Christmas baubles are very huge right now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, my what to watch is a pipeline footage. There, it's just a cool one. There was a there was some nice drone footage that came out of pipeline a couple of years ago, which mm-hmm. uh, has got a ton of views on YouTube. And and anyway, this one is just called Surf from Above Drone Footage North Shore Oahu 2016, because I think the other one was from 2014. And it's just really cool drone footage of pipeline. And also, I've got a bit of a soft spot for it because the opening sequence is shot from the same helicopter route that uh, that when we were in Hawaii last month or two months ago, whenever it was. Oh, we cool. kind of we kind of flew over the North Shore, so it reminded me of that. Um, I don't. Is it Corey Wilson who made that film? Is it his drone footage? If it, it's not, then you need to check out Corey Wilson's Instagram at this point because some of his drone photos coming out of this season are just mind blowing, like nothing I've seen before. Corey Wilson, they're on his Instagram page. Uh, well, this video was shot by Eric Sturman, so okay, I'll check that out. Yeah, his That's Instagram beautiful. handle is Corey underscore Wilson. Definitely go look at it. Very cool. Um, my what to watch is uh, called Trip the Light. Uh, it's actually a slightly older movie. I hadn't seen it until more recently, but it's some surfing from the UK and from Ireland, uh, just shot in beautiful red cam. And it, it, everyone's always very surprised when I tell them that I'm an, an English surfer, that I grew up surfing in England. Everyone sort of doesn't really believe that there's any surf in that area and this is just a very nice well-made portrayal of of surfing in the uk so i hope that you enjoy it um as i said before if you've got any feedback for us please do get in touch you can reach me by emailing podcast at surfsimply.com uh and you can reach the other guys by getting them on social media rue your uh you can find me on twitter at surfing simply ash uh i'm on instagram and twitter as king asher uh instagram or twitter will and the water for now then ladies and gentlemen that is all that we have for you but we will be back with lots more exciting things over the rest of this year for now from all of us goodbye Bye. that was the surf simply podcast from the surf simply coaching resort in costa rica for more about surf simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers go to surfsimply.com 